An image that's used a lot to describe the process of meditation is that of walking a tightrope. If you can imagine yourself walking a tightrope, to move from one end to the other, it's clearly more than any other quality, the quality of balance, of poise, that allows you to keep moving along the tightrope. It's a very relaxed, open state of mind. It's not really tense. It's not looking that far ahead. It's taking one step at a time and concentrating on maintaining balance. What happens is we walk along this tightrope is we're walking along, minding our own business, being very content. And all of a sudden, things come whizzing by our heads. Different sights and sounds and emotions and ideas and memories and realizations and all kinds of things come whizzing by. The temptation when these, these phenomena, these objects are very pleasant is to reach out to try to hold on to them, try to make them stay. And in this process of reaching out, in this movement, we lose our balance and fall off the tightrope. The temptation when these objects are unpleasant or frightening or disturbing in some way is to reach out to try to push them away. And it's that same movement, that same motion in reaching out Again, we lose our balance and fall off the tightrope. An interesting thing about this illustration in terms of meditation is that having done one of those movements and having found oneself hurtling through the air, what we discover upon landing is that we always land upon yet another tightrope. So no matter what has happened, each moment of experience is an opportunity to begin again, to reawaken and reestablish that sense of balance or ease. That force of attachment, of holding on, of clinging or grasping, is very important to understand in terms of what we do in the meditation practice. As we can see, even just in being here a few short days, even just in sitting here and being quiet for an hour, everything is in constant change. It's in constant flux, in motion. It's all transient. It's in flow. How many mind states have you experienced since you first walked in the door? There's been joy and sadness and horror and fear and ecstasy and sleepiness and boredom and excitement and so many different changes. And how many different experiences in the body? Constantly changing, constantly in movement. To try to hold on or keep from changing, to get attached to, to grasp that which must inevitably change, is bound to cause difficulty, conflict, and suffering in our lives. The Buddha used a very 
simple example. He said that to hold on to that which must inevitably change is like grasping on really tight to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, you're bound to get run over because it is constantly changing, it is turning. And to hold on means that at some point we'll get run over. The force of attachment, that sense of needing things to be a certain way, needing to hold them static or fixed, creates great insecurity in our lives because it is, it is a factor or a force of dependency. The happiness or the joy that we derive from feeling that we can control in some way the flow of events is a very, very conditioned happiness because things are constantly changing. And while it is going our way, we feel happy. And when it changes, we feel bereft or sad or unhappy. It's very fragile, that sense of well-being or, or fullness or fulfillment. If you can imagine the recognition that we allow to the natural order of things, watching things change, finding ourselves in harmony with that change. So we watch the seasons change. If we're attached to summer and it becomes fall, what do we do? Do we have a temper tantrum or mope or protest? We understand that is the natural way of things to be in constant flow and constant change. And yet, you look at our bodies, the way we relate to our bodies, to our minds, and to our lives, and we don't have often that same sense of it being a natural phenomenon, our lives being part of, of nature itself, of the world and the universe. We feel separate and we feel apart. And so we don't allow in that same way. We don't accept. We don't understand. Holding on to summer seems very silly. We hold on to youth. We hold on to well-being. We hold on to life itself. The kind of clinging or grasping. So that often, sometimes it seems that it's almost like a personal humiliation to get older or to get sick or to die or to suffer loss. It's not extending that same understanding that we might have towards nature when we look at our own nature. And we can't determine not to. With the best will in the world, we can't sit down in front of a mirror and say, well, you know, I've weighed the pros and cons of it, and I've really considered this very, very thoroughly, and, and I've come to the conclusion that, you know, I'm not going to get old, or I'm just not going to allow this to happen. I'm not going to allow things to change. We don't have that kind of control. And it's not that being attached or holding on or clinging or not understanding is in any way bad or wrong. It's not that it's a, a, a bad thing that you know, we should judge or dislike. 
is merely that the force of attachment, because it's based on ignorance and not really understanding how things must be, is bound to be a force that takes us out of harmony with the truth. It's something that removes that sense of harmony and oneness. And so it creates a sense of of discontent or dissatisfaction because it is out of harmony. In the same way, you find that so many times we extend effort, often with a lot of futility, trying to rid ourselves of that which is unpleasant, as though we could create a landscape in our lives that is only pretty or only bland. When I was in Africa this summer with Joseph teaching, I saw a huge poster on a wall once, which was of a stone arch that was very thick. And through the arch, in the middle, you could just barely see the glimmer of sunlight on the other side. And the caption on the poster was, the only way out is through. And that is a lot of the spirit that we take in undertaking some process of self-discovery, that the only way out is through, that we're not trying to transcend what is happening, if it hurts or if it's painful in some way, but we try to penetrate to the very depth of it, because it's, it's at the very depth of that experience that we will find the truth of it. So we don't try to make it go away or cover it over or get beyond it in some way, but to get right to the center of it without resistance and without fear. Someone, I think it was Spinoza who once said, self-knowledge is always bad news. Sometimes it feels that way. It's just one bad news report after another. But to have the, the energy and the determination to keep on going and just keep looking to arrive right at the center of who we are. And to recognize that we can't control this constant alternation of pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure, that that's the nature of life itself. There's pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain. And if we don't like it, we're in the wrong life. This is it. Last summer, summer of 83, I was uh, with some friends, including Joseph and Jack, and we were taking a hike in California, in Northern California, in Lassen National Park. And we had decided that we were going to hike in for three or four days and then hike out on the same route. And one day, I think it was the second day, I was walking with Jack and It was a two or three walk that morning of solid, incessant, steep downhill. And we were just walking along and talking, just going downhill. And all of a sudden, we were struck by the same realization. And I stopped, and Jack stopped, and we looked at each other, and he said to me, in a dualistic universe, Downhill can mean only one thing. 
And it was right. Because two days later, on the way back along the same route, it was hours and hours and hours of constant, unremitting, steep uphill. And that's the way it is. In a dualistic universe, downhill can mean only one thing. And that's our lives. So what we try to do is come into harmony with this. Find some way of being with this gracefully. This doesn't mean, as is often feared, in contemplating some spiritual practice or meditative approach to life, it doesn't mean being passive or just being a vegetable and let anything happen, you know, and um, not do anything about it. If you can sense the difference between (coughs) the word surrender, surrendering, and the word succumbing, that's the difference. We talk about surrender, it's not a state of succumbing, but it's a state of being able to meet fully that which is happening. Really be there completely. Not trying to make it go away or deny it or pretend or wish something else were happening or push it away, but surrender to the truth of that moment. And from that fullness, that presence of being there, that aliveness, comes the possibility of having a very different kind of energy to change what is going on. But the first step is that deep acceptance or surrender so that we are fully there. It's the fullness of being there that provides the energy to then move. What happens in one's life in terms of trying to integrate anything that might have happened here or some sense of something here being valuable in one's life, what happens is that it becomes increasingly important to move away from the conceptual and the intellectual to an appreciation of the concrete application of qualities like mindfulness and acceptance in different situations and circumstances of life. And to do that, the pragmatic reality for just about everybody is that it becomes essential to set aside some time every day where you just do nothing. You sit and you pay attention to whatever arises in the way that we've been doing here. That there's some formal period which is defined as the time when this is cultivated the qualities of mindfulness and energy and paying attention and letting go. Although theoretically it is certainly possible to be mindful all day long and completely awake and attentive without ever closing your eyes to meditate in some formal or stylized way, the reality for most people is that it is very, very important to spend some time each day where it is practically applied in a formal way. 
It's as though just by sitting or walking for that period of time, we reaffirm that sense of integrity because it is a time when we're not judging and we're not wanting and we're not clinging and we're not trying to push away, but we're working with accepting that which is there. And the integrity of that is the sense of whatever is happening is enough and that we are enough. There's not a wanting ourselves to be other than the way we are. If you're sitting and you're feeling sleepy, you pay attention to the sleepiness. If you're feeling joy, you pay attention to the joy. And they're each enough. So there's a very different mind state from that which many of us move throughout our day with. It's devoting that period to resting in self-acceptance and observation rather than judging or wanting or disliking. And so it becomes a very special part of the day. And it is important to set aside some time each day to do that. Ideally, that would be what and what we usually recommend to people is that it's two hours a day, an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. The hour in the morning kind of creates an atmosphere and a a strength of mindfulness that makes it easier to be mindful and aware throughout the day. And the hour in the evening is basically a release of tension. We just can discharge whatever tension may have accumulated. The reality of most people's lives doesn't generally allow for that much time. But what seems to be most important is that even for 15 or 20 minutes a day, even for half an hour a day, that each day there be some time set aside just to recognize the value of mindfulness and concentration and to reaffirm that. There are also many times during the day when we can appreciate the power of silence. If we just take the time and look at our day, there are many times when, just out of a vague sense of unease or discomfort, we reach out for something to try to cover it over. We want to make things happen, you know, have things happen to distract ourselves. Sometimes, if instead of doing that, you can just take a deep breath and rest in the moment and enjoy silence, it's much more peaceful and much more fulfilling. I usually use the example of, I know that when I sit or I do a retreat, and then the retreat is over and I get into my car to go somewhere on the days when it's working, which it's not right now, and I get into the car, And the first thing that I do is look at my hand as it reaches out to turn on the radio. And sometimes I don't even want to hear anything. It's just this reflex that I have to fill up the time and the space, that it can't just be quiet. I have to have noise surrounding me. And sometimes I just watch my hand kind of reach out to do that, and I just pull it back. 
And it's usually wonderful because what I want more fundamentally is that silence. And so looking at one's day to see where are the moments when we can just find some peacefulness and restfulness and take advantage of those. Also seeing the times when a lot of times we're in situations where we can't do one thing at a time. It's just not possible. But often we're in situations where it is possible and we merely think it's not. And so looking at different activities and seeing how, how can it be done in such a way so that there can be more concentration and more fullness and more of an intensity of presence in doing that. And very often it's surprising. There are many times when that that becomes a possibility. So it's sitting every day and looking at the different aspects of our lives and seeing how we can be more mindful and more aware, more present in what we do. Just exploring that is actually it's very opening and expansive to see the different possibilities of making different choices. It becomes possible to structure our lives more around simplicity and truth. And that doesn't mean in any way that we adopt a certain lifestyle or belief system. One of the great fallacies of coming to a situation like this, which is sort of odd, you know. I mean, people walk around with blankets on and these bells ringing all the time, and it is, it is peculiar. And coming to this and then leaving, very often people get attached to this image or model as a model of a lifestyle, rather than understanding it just as a, a situation that gets created because it's easier within the simplicity of this to develop a sense of being mindful. You know, it's not uncommon for people to go home after a retreat and say to their loved ones, you know, it's wonderful, you know, I've I've found the way to live and we're not going to have supper anymore, you know, we're going to (laughs) eat bananas and tea from now on, and maybe rice cakes, you know, and it happens. We just, we get caught by the form and overlook sometimes what is the essence. So it's not coming here, if you've gotten something valuable from it, trying to appreciate it in your life has nothing to do with adopting a certain lifestyle or being a certain way. And this applies uh, to communicating into language as well. Very early on, um, when we began teaching about eight years ago or so, uh, we taught a retreat that a friend had asked us to teach because he was having a lot of trouble with his parents who were not very happy about what he was doing, which was doing this. And he had asked us to please teach a retreat, especially for people like his parents who were uh, 
kind of skeptical and uncertain about what their children were doing. And we did teach that retreat, and his mother came. And it was really interesting to see from her perspective what had happened when her son left what was a three-month retreat and went back home. At that time, Jack or Joseph was giving a talk about um, a circle where at zero degrees you perceive the world as, as the world, and then you get to, you know, 90 degrees and you perceive emptiness in all form and you um, get to 180 degrees and all of a sudden the world is the world again and then you get to 270 degrees and everything is dissolving because it's all changing and then you get, anyway, it just went on and on. And this friend went home after the three-month retreat and his parents said, well, you know, tell us about it. What was it like? And he said, well, you see, there's this circle. And you start at zero degrees and it's like this. And then you get to 90 degrees and it's like that. And, you, and they were just dumbfounded. They did not have a clue as to what was going on. Because what happens sometimes when we experience something that is valuable what we feel is valuable for us is that we find a need inside ourselves to protect it as though we could lose it in some way. And sometimes these protective mechanisms involve a lot of things that keep us separate and apart from other people and from the world. And we use them to be able to hold on to what we've got because we want, we want to treasure it. And we use language and communication and lifestyle and value judgments, sometimes in that way, to try to protect some experience of silence or of awareness. And it's really not necessary. It doesn't need any protection. It's there to protect us. It doesn't need to be fostered and held onto and clung to in that way. It will protect us. It's more question in establishing a basis of simplicity and truth in our lives, of having a commitment to that and having a commitment to a state of being loving and compassionate towards ourselves and towards others. With a commitment towards being loving and compassionate, then can arise a whole process, a whole system of morality based on that, not based on being judgmental or self-righteous or removed, but based on the understanding that to harm or to hurt another being in any way is to harm or to hurt ourselves. And so choosing to have the commitment not to act out of desire or aversion in such a way that creates pain or suffering for other human beings or other beings. to have a sense of being able to let go. In the teachings of the Buddha where he talks about everything instantaneously being born and dying in each moment. If you understand that, there is the possibility of letting go completely in each moment. And with that possibility is the possibility of beginning again in each moment. And that is the source of being able to forgive oneself completely and forgive others completely. 
that ability to let go. So we can have a sense of morality based on understanding and based on love and compassion. And it's essential actually in doing a meditation practice or pursuing a form of spiritual practice to have a sense of morality as the basis for that because it will simplify and clarify and lighten the mind and clear away a lot of feelings of doubt and confusion and remorse and guilt to live one's life in a fashion that is clear and is truthful, is open. There's a reciprocal relationship between how we live our lives and what we experience sitting on a zafu and what we experience sitting on a zafu and how we then go and live our lives. The connecting links are the powers of awareness and love and generosity, because in sitting we develop a kind of generosity of spirit where we can allow more and more and let things be. And that translates into our lives into a more concrete form of generosity, of offering either money or service or goods, material goods, just in an ability to let go and not grasp and cling. Because the mind state of grasping and clinging is based on a mind state of impoverishment, of feeling that we are not enough or what we've got is not enough. And the mind state of generosity is the understanding that it is just enough, that we can share, we can give. I know that I have often, in thinking about giving something away, gone through trials and tribulations as, as I ponder whether or not to do it, you know, and I think, what if I need it? You know, something may come up so that I need it. I haven't needed it in five years, but still, you know, it all changes. Maybe I'll need it. Usually what happens is that I give it away. And I think I can honestly say that I have never once experience some sense of sorrow or remorse about giving something away. Usually, once it's gone, I forget I even owned it. And it's just gone, and someone else is using it. But it's that fear, that clinging of like, oh, what if? You know, what if I need it? What if I don't have enough? That also keeps us bound and keeps us unhappy. So just in that same way that we can cultivate a sense of morality in our lives. We can cultivate a sense of generosity in our lives, both of which add immeasurably to the kind of inner experience one can have in meditating, and the meditation itself in strengthening the powers of opening and generosity and love and compassion foster the ability to relate more and more to these in a concrete way in our lives. The third really important aspect of this is truthfulness. In aspiring to somehow understand the truth of of our beings and explore and discover, 
it becomes absolutely essential to maintain a commitment to truthfulness in all aspects of our lives. Just to have a respect for the simplicity that is generated and the fearlessness that is generated and the power that is generated by telling the truth rather than getting involved in some kind of tangled web of deceiving oneself or deceiving others, which, of course, gets extremely entangling and confusing, confusing and dark. But to have that kind of commitment under any circumstance Even when it seems that one is not telling the truth for compassionate reasons, that has to be looked at very carefully because the consequence of not telling the truth is often still a sense of separation and alienation from other people, from these people to whom one is not telling the truth. I had an example in my own life, which I like to tell about because it's, I think, a really good illustration of this. I had a friend who was going to India to meditate for a month, and she didn't want her mother to know that she was going alone. So she told her mother that she and her husband were going and that if anything happened, if there was any kind of emergency at all, she could call this phone number, and it was the phone number of the house I was living in. So about two days before she was due home, her mother called and said, have you seen my daughter or her husband? And the person who answered the phone said very casually, oh yeah, he was just here for dinner and he left. And then her mother said, what do you mean he was just there for dinner? <laughs> Where's my daughter? And that started a chain of deceit that was extensive and deep. Because the person who had answered the phone said, oh, well, uh, he came back a few days early because he had this business to attend to, and, and she'll be back in just a few days. And, and her, you know, this woman sensed that we weren't telling the truth, and she got really upset and agitated, and she started calling all these other friends around in the community. And so we all had to call one another and make sure we were telling the same lies you know, to her. And she was getting more and more upset and convinced that her daughter was dead somewhere, which is what she said. You know. and then she started getting her neighbors to call us because she thought maybe we wouldn't tell her the truth, but we would tell these other people the truth. And it just went on and on and on. It was so torturous and so unpleasant. And finally, somebody just couldn't bear it anymore. And they decided they were going to tell this woman the truth. And they did. And she didn't believe it. <laughs> she had been told so many lies at that point that she just she couldn't even hear. She couldn't even tell what was true anymore. We couldn't even tell what was true anymore. And that is the nature of being dishonest, is that it clouds even one's own ability to discern what is true. And so it is very important to foster that 
and to respect that in all aspects of one's life. Sometimes when we hear words like detachment or equanimity in terms of hearing or reading that one does a meditation practice to learn to be more detached and have more equanimity and be able to let go. Sometimes that implies for us a kind of coldness or withdrawal or indifference, a removal from experience. And it doesn't even seem that appealing. But really what can be understood by words like detachment or equanimity or letting go is a sense not of removal from experience but of fully being present with each experience in a state of balance or state of harmony not coldness or withdrawal but a more complete openness and truthfulness and allowing of each experience. Krishnamurti once said, there is no silence without love. And it's that kind of silence of mind that we talk about cultivating or growing. It's a very loving acceptance of all aspects of what we see and a loving experience in the moment with openness, and gentleness and lack of judgment, being close to all of our experience. In Pali, the word metta, which is the word that you see over the doorway, M-E-T-T-A, is a word that means loving kindness. And it's loving kindness in a sense that is unconditioned in the way that in letting go and not needing or wanting things to be a certain way, there arises the possibility of an unconditioned happiness, not based on things being a certain way, but generated out of the feeling of fullness or completeness. If you think about where happiness comes from, it's actually kind of mysterious because we see people in what seem to be wonderful situations and circumstances who are just absolutely miserable. And we see people who are in miserable, wretched situations and circumstances who seem very happy. It's very puzzling. I decided that either one is happy or not happy. It has nothing to do with anything else. There's the possibility of an unconditioned happiness, which is not dependent on things being a certain way. And so it is not fragile. It is not determined or bound in the way that what we normally define as happiness or pleasure is. And that is is that state of unconditioned love, of being able to feel acceptance and openness and warmth and kindness and caring in any situation or circumstance, not having it dependent on some particular thing coming in return or needing things to be a certain way. 
And this is what in the Buddhist teaching is called metta or loving kindness. So it's a spaciousness and allowing that is not based on wanting or needing something to be happening. Because it is not based on that, it's free. It is a state of freedom because it cannot be tainted or marred or diminished by something changing in some way. In the practice, just in being able to, even for a few moments, every once in a while, experience a state of complete acceptance of what is happening, we are generating this force of metta or loving-kindness, making it more of a reality and more of a power in our lives. And in just the same way as having a, a commitment to morality and generosity in our lives fosters deepening in the practice, having a commitment to the qualities and the manifestation of the qualities of love and compassion in our lives fosters deepening in the practice. And in that way, what we do on the cushion, so to speak, and what we do in the rest of our lives is joined. It's one. It's not different. It's not just some odd ritualistic behavior that we do every now and then when, you know, the mood strikes us. It's, it's a very unified whole of certain values and strengths and understandings. And so one's whole life becomes meditative or awakened rather than just some particular aspect that we do at different times. Coming to a retreat can be a really invaluable experience because it is an opportunity to enjoy an environment that is designed for nothing else than the deepening of meditation practice. But what happens at the end of a retreat as one leaves and goes back into daily life is actually the real test. And so whether it's a two-day retreat or a ten-day retreat or a two-week retreat or a three-month retreat or a three-year retreat, it is at the point of its closing that one is really challenged in terms of being mindful and being aware and being balanced. I'd like to encourage you to return and to use the facility to again be able to immerse yourself in silence and concentrate solely on just forming a continuity of mindfulness and a sense of the continuity of mindfulness. But most important of all is if it seems like a valuable part of your lives to concentrate on 
being able to establish a daily sitting practice. And what's very helpful if you live near other people who also meditate or you have the opportunity to meditate with other people is to come together and to be able to sit together and share in that experience as we've done here. Because even though this is a very alone experience in a lot of ways, there is also a tremendous group support that we are fortunate if we have other people with whom we can share the kind of experience. And so to find out who in your area or where in your area you might find other people to sit with and to pursue it in a very practical, concrete way, in that way. Does anybody have any questions? Usually we do uh, some kind of loving-kindness meditation at the beginning or at the end of each sitting. We do it at the beginning to establish that feeling of openness and allowing and relaxedness, understanding that everything is okay. We do it at the end to help establish the link between what we do sitting in a funny posture on a cushion and how we live our lives, to recognize that 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 state of being caring and loving and compassionate is the link. You just close your eyes and relax your bodies. Just take a deep breath and relax. traditional way to begin a loving-kindness meditation is by asking and extending forgiveness. You can repeat to yourselves, if I have hurt or harmed anyone, either knowingly or unknowingly, I ask their forgiveness. And if anyone has hurt or harmed me, either knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them.
Begin by filling your body with feelings of gentleness and caring and warmth directed towards yourself. Feeling of allowing. So you were embracing yourself from the inside. And repeat to yourself whatever is meaningful for you in terms of what you might wish for yourself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Filling the body with those feelings of warmth and caring and repeating whatever phrases are meaningful. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be liberated. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be liberated. Begin extending those same feelings to the people sitting around you. Feelings of warmth and caring and allowing and acceptance. Just as I want to be happy, so may you be happy. Just as I want to be peaceful, so may you be peaceful. Just as I want to be liberated, so may you be liberated. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be liberated. Be peaceful, be liberated. 
And then widen that field so it includes everyone sitting in the room. Just as I want to be happy, so may you all be happy. Just as I want to be peaceful, so may you all be peaceful. Just as I want to be liberated, so may you be liberated. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be liberated. begin extending that field in more and more expansive way until it becomes limitless or boundless. The same feelings of caring and concern and openness as though you were embracing the whole world. Just as I want to be happy, so may all beings be happy. Just as I want to be peaceful, so may all beings be peaceful. Just as I want to be liberated, so may all beings be liberated. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be liberated. Then if particular beings come to mind, you can visualize them one by one. Extend that feeling, that force of loving-kindness towards them. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be liberated. Those whom you like, those whom you don't like. People whom you know, people whom you may not know. people who are being harmed and people who are harming others. 
those who are being born, those who are dying. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be liberated. And then again, extending that feeling towards all beings everywhere without distinction, without separation or exclusion. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be liberated. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be liberated. <laughs>